podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. So you know I said we were done with this series of top tens. Well, consider two more supplementals, we'll call them. I'm here with our chief editor, Kevin Turner. If you can hear some noise in the background, we are recording once again at Silverstone. So it's amazing to be back here and watching some cars go around. Kev, welcome back for bonus shows. We thought bonus. we were done. <laughs> bonus. We've done sort of six episodes per series. Um, but then these are two bonus ones, which took me absolutely ages to do the research for. I finally finished and done the article, so I thought, let's just do two bonus ones rather than waiting for Series 4. And as people will have seen in the title uh, on, on their podcast app, we're talking pre-war. Now, today we're going to do the cars, and we'll get on to pre-war drivers uh, soon enough. But this is really quite deep stuff that you that, that you, you said like, I want to make these two podcasts and it's something that you that you feel that you want to do but why is that well it came out from originally from a I mean I've always had a little bit of a fascination because it's 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 wheels mm. <laughs> it's, it's racing cars oh. um but uh, I think Alex Kalanorkas asked me sort of tongue-in-cheek about where when we were doing the Mercedes top 10 Grand Prix drivers obviously that included some people who were mm. pre-second world war and he said oh well where would they be in your top 10 uh, pre-war Grand Prix drivers list and I went oh I'm sure no one would want to listen to that oh let me know and then people did actually email going uh, yeah we'd like to be up for that and then over Christmas I got a couple of emails going where, where was that pre-war thing you were doing and so I thought Brilliant. do you know what actually let's get on with it so uh, I've done quite a lot of research and I found it increasingly fascinating I mean I spent way too much time on it uh, <laughs> increasingly fascinating because it's you know it's the early days it's pioneers it's some incredible cars incredible people mm. Uh, you know, some of them were fighter pilots and secret agents and all sorts of stuff. So fascinating people, incredible cars. So I thought, well, why not? I know it's going to be a bit niche, but hopefully the stories and the people involved are just interesting, even if you've never heard of them. And before we get into it, what are the main similarities, the lines you can draw between endurance racing then and what we know of a modern formula series or a formula one series well i think in those days there were there wasn't really the differentiation between the categories mm. so you could have in the really early days you basically had the same sorts of cars doing all the big events whether they'd be grand prix or what we would now consider to be endurance events i think that started to change maybe during the 1920s i think le mans was specifically there to try and improve touring cars, so you wouldn't have Grand Prix cars there. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the the different disciplines didn't exist in the way that they do now. So the top drivers just... And there were only a handful of events in each year. Mm. You, know, you did the French Grand Prix, you did the Targa Florio, and you probably had a job at the factory the rest of the year. You, know, you weren't a professional racing driver all the year round. You might be a test driver, perhaps. Uh, and you might use the same cars for those events. So it was quite a long time, and that's why it's been quite difficult. The early days, they literally did do a handful of races every, you know, during, you know, during a year. And yet the names of the cars, or the manufacturers, largely familiar with what we talk about in 2023. Yes, it's, it's, uh, you'd like to say it's because success in motorsport <laughs> is important to your uh, commercial success. But yeah, certainly a lot of the names in this, uh, in this list are still with us. Which, so hopefully that, that, that kind of ties it a bit more to the modern age for people as well. Yeah, okay. Well, we're going to look forward to obviously finding out your top 10 pre-war Grand Prix cars, but also about, as you say, the stories, the people, the technology, some of the footage you've managed to uncover. Let's get into it. Let's start number 10. 
So number 10 is the Delage Type 15, which I think, it's a shame we can't do, put sort of project pictures up. <laughs> uh, perhaps we should do a video to go with this or something. But um, I think it's an, it's an exquisite looking car. It's quite neat and small. It's quite boxy. Um, but the reason that it was that it's on this list is it absolutely dominated 1927. And probably a lot of people won't know this, but there was actually a world championship before the war. Um, World Manufacturers Championship it wasn't a driver's title, but there was it for manufacturers. And Delage won it in 1927, uh, and they won four of the five qualifying races. The one they didn't win was the Indy 500, which they didn't enter because in those days, <laughs> Indy 500 was run to, well, at various points, run to similar rules. Mm. Um, but the re- yeah, the reason it's in here uh, is because it was dominant uh, and it had an unbelievably expensive exotic engine, nickel chromium crankshaft. And it produced 170 brake horsepower, 8,000 RPM, which was from a 1,500cc engine. She's pretty good going, if you think about it. The one and a half litre engine in the 1920s producing 170 brake horsepower. Very high engine speed for those days, uh, and it held together. They had problems in 26 when they cooked their drivers, oh. which wasn't ideal. We've come across right. this a few times, that the, the fundamentals of cars hadn't been established in places. So, yeah, they fried their drivers in 26, but they, they sorted it out for, for, for 27 uh, and the cars dominated. The reason it's not higher up on this list is because the opposition was pretty weak during this period. They basically had Bugatti to beat, but some of the big names were either hadn't arrived yet or were having a bit of a break. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know the name Delage, tell us a little bit about where that came from and who you know who built French, the engine. French, for, well, I mean the the designer of, of this of this car was Albert Lorry uh, or Albert Lorry. I'm yeah. sure that is. Um, <laughs> uh, and Delage is a French sports car manufacturer really um of the sort of uh, of the era um but actually this they did it did go on longer but this <laughs> the expense of producing this car and this engine so to contradict our intro <laughs> is one of the reasons why delage doesn't exist anymore um but some of the cars that they did if you've ever you go to le mans classic somewhere like that uh the, the, some of their pre-war sports cars as we call them now fantastic looking thing so yeah just a just a really nice thing really um, and racing in 1927, what were the regulations around that in terms of things like the engines? How flexible could they be in terms of what they brought? Things like the the, the tyres were they were they uh, to a, a certain spec? How how much control over not much Grand Prix racing? They were much freer. So they had a very. You can tell actually as you go through the different seasons that they're experimenting with different rule sets. So it's not like okay, I know we've just had a big one in Formula One, but we the fundamentals we you know we know about that were long established uh, but they're still experimenting so at this particular point the, it was an engine limit mm. 1500 cc supercharged and, they, and a couple of years before that it had been two litres uh, and then a few years later they went no this doesn't really work let's try a maximum weight formula which we'll get to in a minute of 750 kilos but mm. around that you could pretty much do what you liked um, so obviously that was good for innovation. You know, things things moved on quite swiftly. Although just after this, because this formula wasn't popular, obviously there was quite a lot of economic downturn, mm. late twenties, early thirties. Uh, th- there was a bit of stagnation um, uh, with with Grand Prix manufacturers. Um, but yeah, the rules still fluctuated quite a lot on and off during during the period. And, and actually, the fifteen hundred cc formula was only for twenty six and twenty seven. Yeah, and this is the car of that formula, so that's why it gets onto the list. And that kicks us off in 10th. 
what car is in ninth place? So the previous formula was the two-litre formula, as we just discussed, <laughs> yeah. and it's the Fiat 804. Uh, I've got it 804, 404, yeah. uh, I think, online. That's because the, that's the engine designation, but I think it's widely known as the 804. And it's it's on here, again, because it was the car of the 1922 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fiat, it, you don't think of it as a Grand Prix manufacturer at all. No. Um, but actually, that was one of the big one of the big ones, both before the First World War and after. And in fact, the reason they gave up was they got fed up with people pinching their designs and poaching their staff so some things never change uh and uh, yeah so the 804 was very neat it kind of set the template of what grand prix you know front engine rear wheel drive grand prix cars would look like for the next well i mean you could argue into the 50s right until cooper came along obviously there was auto union um, with a mid-engine car we'll get to later but yeah so they were basically copied so they won uh they won the the, the french grand prix which in those days was kind of the big race we think of seasons now mm. but the french grand prix was Kind of like the World Cup final. Like right. That's the one they all want to win. That's you know there were other races, but that was one of the biggest ones. Um, they they did suffer a fatality in that race. The the circuits in those days were very bad. And the twenty two French Grand Prix was it was almost a mud bath in places. I'm looking at footage of that. They were sort of they weren't a lot of the tracks in those days weren't paved. So they were very rutted, almost more like a rally stage or, wow. a, or a rallycross stage. And this one was particularly bad and it caused some failures one of which uh caused a wheel failure on uh Biagio Nazzaro's uh Fiat and he 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 crashed uh, and died but his um and he was the nephew of the winner Felice Nazzaro um who he, yeah he took the win he beat Bugatti it was a Fiat versus Bugatti race really at Strasbourg um but it's just one of those it's one of those landmark cars to such a degree that the Sunbeam that won the following year's French Grand Prix was mm. described as a green fit. Wow. So there we go. Uh, pink <laughs> Mercedes or green and red bulls. It's none of it's none of it's new. So yeah, so wow. that was uh it, it, it kind of set the template really. And what were the drivers in terms of uh, what would they have been wearing? Gloves and a and a leather cap? Yeah, basically. I mean we're decades before crash helmets. Yep. Um so yeah, they would have had I mean safety wasn't really even a word that would have been and well at this point we've still got riding mechanics. Uh, now, often they got more severely injured or killed than the drivers because they didn't have anything to hang on to. Right. At least the drivers had. I mean, we have no steer, we have no seat belts, obviously no steering mm. um, seat belts, no roll cages, no, no nothing. But at least the driver, well, I can't be on saying this. At least the driver had the steering wheel to hold on to. <laughs> Whereas the co-driver, if you were rolling over, yeah, uh, that was. Yeah, there, there were a lot of serious injuries and deaths and cars crushing people and all sorts of hideousness. So, yeah, so the riding mechanic, uh, in, you know, they were only allowed, those the two, the driver and the co-driver, were only allowed to work on the car at certain points. Mm. Again, the rules fluctuated slightly. But, you know, it was quite stringent, you know, because they were trying to make cars better. These are the early days when cars were hopeless mm. in many ways, uh, and and this pushed them forward. But, yeah, the the, the, the guys behind the wheel and and women, it was um, they were actually more female drivers in those days than there than there are now in terms of the top of the sport mm. um you know were they were intrepid pioneers they're almost wow. more yeah they're almost more pioneering spirit types than sort of professional racing drivers that i guess this is the period where that sort of transition starts to happen okay well that was number nine let's move on to number eight and another recognizable name from the grid yes yes so uh, the alfa romeo p2 which is 1924-25. So this is the car of the of the two-litre era, really, uh, and was a result of 
Alfred pinching people from Fiat. This is where we came in for the previous. <laughs> I thing. love it. A hundred years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fiat really did get ticked off. They produced a couple more good cars after the uh, mm. the Auto Four and, and gave up, never to return, unless you can count obviously badging than the ownership of Ferrari. Um, so Vittorio Jano was. Uh, uh, well, became a legendary designer and he produced the P2, which was actually really the first Alfa Romeo Grand Prix car. The P1 did appear in the 1923 Italian Grand Prix, but uh, crashed during practice, killed one of the drivers and, and, and they decided to withdraw and that car never actually raced. So the P2, uh, and it was a winner f- right from the start. Antonio Ascari, who's the father of Alberto Ascari, who people will remember mm. as the 52-53 world champion, top driver, um, he won the Cremona GP, which is a smaller event. Um, uh, but then they went to the French Grand Prix, which had a field of, you know, it had Fiat there, it had Sunbeam, Delage were there, the new Type 35 Bugatti, which we may get to later. Yeah. Uh, so and it was a big, so that was a big one of the sort of classic races, the 24 French Grand Prix. Um, Ascari had some problems. Uh, Henry Seagrove, Sunbeam had some problems. Pietro Bordino in the Fiat, quickest Fiat hit problems. The unreliability was a big thing in those days. Yeah. Uh, but Giuseppe Campari came through to win for Alfa Romeo and that really set Alfa Romeo up and they went on to uh, to win more major races and in fact did win the 1925 World Championship, which was the first year of the manufacturer's uh, title. So this era, which we've covered off quite nicely, sort of early 20s to mid 20s, how long were the races? How many How many people showed up to watch them? What sort of... What sort of state was Grand Prix racing in? in well, the, the crowds were usually huge because, again, we're in an era where there wasn't a lot else happening. Right. It was a huge event. Often the circuits were massive, so they took in a big a big area. I mean, they varied a lot. But, you know, they had, and again, spectator safety was not so much of a thing. So people would just, bearing in mind that we're only just over 20 odd years from city to city races, yeah. which was the pre-Grand Prix stuff, which I've left off of the list list. Okay. That's, that really is super, super niche. But they were, you know, they, 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 I mean, that was stopped because of fatalities. Like even at the turn of the, the you know, 18th to 19th, 20th century, people thought, yeah, we can't have people being mown down by this new contraption that we've just invented. Um, so, yeah, so this is a move to circuit race. So, well, the, the 1924 French Grand Prix that I was just talking about, that took seven hours. Wow. Yeah. Now, the first few Grand Prix, which we might mention and uh, get to later on, the f- very first French Grand Prix took two days. Brilliant. They stopped in the, in the afternoon, early evening, packed all the cars away, and they went, right, chaps, here we go again, part two. <laughs> Let's carry two on. Two-day event. <laughs> so, yeah, they were – so, yeah, that, they are kind of endurance races almost. I mean, they, you know, the six, six hours are quite often races in the World Endurance Championship, aren't they? But the Grand Prix were that long. Wow. All right, let's move on to number seven and – and progress technologically by 10 years. What's next? Yeah, so this is quite a big leap technologically from the cars we've been talking about, the Auto Union Type C. So Auto Unions, people might have seen these at, at the Goodwoods because Auto Union um, was an amalgamation of four different manufacturers, one of which was Audi. Yeah. And of course, Audi is what we now know it is. It's the same for... Uh, four Rings logo, so mm. you could think of it as an Audi, but it was called an Auto Union at the time. Uh, designed by Ferdinand Porsche. And he had been inspired by the Benz Tropfenwagen that didn't make this list because he didn't win anything, but was quite um, quite pioneering in the 1920s. And he put the engine behind the driver. Right. Now, <laughs> this didn't work quite as well as it did with the Cooper later on, partly because the engines were absolutely massive. <laughs> so this is the era where you could do anything you liked so long as your weight of your car didn't go over 750 kilos. So that was the regulation. Basically, so you could put a V16 can, behind exactly. a driver. 
Yeah, you can do anything you like. So long. Now, when they organise this, I mean, this is just a story throughout time, isn't it? The organisers, the people setting the rules, were trying to limit speeds of the cars. If we do the maximum, that'll just stop people making big engines. Right. <laughs> uh, and sadly, Phil, and that coincided with the Nazi-funded Autonia Mercedes-Benz teams coming along with right. lots of money, lots of clever people, and lots of resources, and going, well, what we'll do is we'll make everything else light. So the engines can be enormous and powerful and the cars will be lighter yeah. and more streamlined and the speeds went exponentially up over the next few years. So the Type C, by the time we get to the Type C, it's a 6-litre V16 <sighs> with over 500 brake horsepower. Uh, and it was a bit of a monster, to be honest. I think the, the auto unions didn't handle as well. Uh, they hadn't quite got independent suspension sorted. They were working on that quite a lot throughout the 1930s. Um, but in Bent Rosemeyer, they found their their genius if you like he'd never raced a car before only in bikes uh, and they stuck him in a Grand Prix car and he just he was fearless enthusiastic obviously incredibly talented and he only ever drove Grand Prix cars and wow. he won about a third of the Grand Prix he ever started and the reason this car is on the list is because in 1936 it's the one year where Auto Union got one over Mercedes you know they, they were Mercedes genuine, genuinely generally during mm. that period had the advantage but in 36 Rosemeyer and, and, and also Union were, were down the road and it's funny you mentioned some of these drivers were pilots they came from things like that because they were daredevils in a way but this car almost looks like an aircraft in that the pilot is right at the front All it's all engine and then you've got the driver and his feet hanging over the front axle. No safety, just... It, it looks curious in terms of the design. It does. It doesn't look like a, what we'd think of as a mid-engine car, does yeah. it, really? But, but I think that's because it's so big. Yeah. It's all engine. It just happens to be behind the driver. So it had very you know, big oversteer characteristics. characteristics. It yeah. took a lot of mastering. And this is the early car. I mean, Handstuck was quite successful in the early auto unions. Achille Varzi did win some races but really it's Rosemeyer that gets the car onto this list because he I don't think he knew any better he'd never done anything else so mm. um, and I mean during the research for this I read Rudolf Creaciola's autobiography which I would recommend and he said you know we didn't think that Rosemeyer was going to kind of be around for very long oh. yeah he was incredibly fun. Now, he's not in a critical way he's admiring of, of Rosemeyer and and Tatsio Nuvolari but he did say, you know, we did think mm. every time he got in the car, you know. Um, but, of course, the irony is that he wasn't really killed in doing anything foolhardy in terms of uh, attacking in a Grand Prix. He was killed when he was caught by a crosswind on the autobahn doing a record attempt, which Caracciola claims to have, because he'd done the run in the morning mm. and said the wind was picking up. Uh, but I think Rosemar was the sort of character who was just going to do it anyway. Uh, wow. And, and so he was, he was, he was killed uh, and he was still in his 20s, 28, I think. Uh, 27, 28. Um, and his lucky number was, was 13. Wow. So. Well, let's move on. A name that you've already mentioned. Same era of Grand Prix racing. Let's get into number six. Yeah, so number six is the Mercedes W25. So this is the arrival, really, of of the Germans into Grand Prix racing. Mercedes actually had been around before, but in terms of the, the 1930s, which are the most famous Silver Arrows period, this is the one. So this is the first car that laughs in the face of the 750-kilogram formula. So it's more streamlined. Uh, you know, if you look at it, 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 they've got all the important bits covered to try and reduce the drag. This is early days of making all independent suspension work because... Um, Teams had tried to do it before, but this is probably the first car that really that really makes it that makes it happen. 
Uh, it won the Eiffel Rennen on its debut, and the Eiffel Rennen was a kind of like a Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, but not the German Grand Prix, yeah. if that makes sense. They would then hold the German Grand Prix, usually at the Nürburgring, a few months later, but that was like the sort of other race. Uh, they then lost the French Grand Prix when all the cars broke down, including the auto unions. Um, but after that, they sort of got into their stride. Uh, 1935, Rudolf Caracciola, once he'd recovered from his injuries from a Monaco crash a couple of years before, dominated. And he became European champion. The European champion before uh, before the Second World War was really like the world championship. So you can kind of think of him as the 1935 world champion, really. Um, and they just they just kept developing it. So thirty four, thirty five, it's successful. The reason it doesn't climb any up any higher, I guess, partly is because for thirty six they they kept making the engine bigger. They shortened the chassis, and the W twenty five K, as it was known in nineteen thirty six, was actually a nightmare, really tricky to drive. And they got completely thumped by Auto Union to the point where they actually withdrew from the season before it finished. They had a restructure within their racing department and went away to think about what they could do next. And that produced a car which might be a little bit higher on this list, but so it, it didn't finish well. But yeah. it's one of the cars that moved things forward, things forward in the twenties, thirties. Uh, sorry. Yeah. All right. We're halfway through. We'll take a quick break and we'll get into the top five pre-war Grand Prix cars on the way next. All right. Let's get into the top five of Kev's top ten pre-war Grand Prix cars. Let's get number five on. So number five is the Alfa Romeo P3, also known as, known as the Tipo B. Uh, so it's a 32 to 35 car. It's now man Vittorio Jano again mm. produced. Now this is widely regarded as the sort of first true single-seater Grand Prix machine, despite the fact that, that you didn't have to have a riding mechanic after 1925. People just carried on producing cars <laughs> that were basically two-seaters. And he went, well, this seems a bit daft. To be fair, Miller had already done that in America. So okay. American fans, yes, Indy got there first on that one. Um, but as a, as a Grand Prix car, the P3 came along. It was during a period where the for- formula had gone really odd. That the, the, There were Grand Prix regulations, but no, none of the organisers bothered to run to them. It was basically, ah, come with what you like. So we had such ridiculous things as four and a half litre Bentleys running in Grand Prix's and uh, some of the races were basically sports car races. Caraccio would be in a big SSK Mercedes and it was a bit random. So when I was trying to do a list of major Grand Prix mm. wins, it was almost impossible because... Grand Prix and sports car races were almost overlapping during this period, but the Alpha is a proper pucker Grand Prix car, uh, and it was it was the car to have in 1932. Um, Nuvolari won the Italian and French Grand Prix. Caracciola having his one year not in a Mercedes won the German Grand Prix, and then what I quite like about this car is that they Alfa Romeo went yeah no we're done now thanks and they uh, handed their cars over to some bloke called Enzo Ferrari people might have heard of <laughs> who'd set up his own team in 1929 and proved good at getting the right people around him and that's probably Enzo's greatest skill really mm. and Alfa went yeah you can run our you can run our cars in Grand Prix racing but you can't have the P3 it's a bit too good okay. so they kept them in the factory and let him race the previous model the 8C Monza which was fine to start with but halfway through the year Maserati came out with a new car. And new Ferrari got fed up with, with well, I don't think he got on particularly well with Ferrari, fed up and he jumped ship and suddenly Maserati started winning everything. And then Alfa Romeo went, oh, go on then, you can have the Tipo B back. <laughs> uh, and then it started winning again with uh, Fagioli, Luigi Fagioli jumped the other way from Maserati to Alfa and he carried on winning. So by the end of 33, the Tipo B is the car in Grand Prix racing. Everything is good in Alfa Romeo as well. They're going to make the engine a bit bigger for 1934. It's all good. And then along came the Germans and ruined it all. Uh, but even then, the, the reason that, that it's up ahead, up against the W25, which is essentially the car that 
usurped it is because it it, quite, it fights quite a good rear guard action. You know, Louis Chiron wins the 1934 French Grand Prix against all the German cars and Nuvolari scores his most famous victory in the 1935 German Grand Prix with a very special board out, special suspension. I'd see everyone, in lots of places that quoted as a 3.2 litre car, but I, I think um, it's now been established it was a 3.8 engine he had in there, which wow. is perfectly legitimate yeah. because it's still the weight formula. Um and uh, so, yeah, so the, the, the Tipo B finally was replaced uh, after 1935, but it had had a four-year running Grand Prix racing, two of which it had been the car to beat. And these cars are, with my far more superficial knowledge than you, the, these cars start to look and behave more like I would, I think, of an early Grand Prix car. But let's describe <laughs> an, a whole different beast entirely and go back in time a bit more to number four on your list. And along come the French. Yes. So this is the Peugeot L76. Uh, and in terms of how important the cars are to move the automotive industry along, this is probably the most important on the list. So up to this point, your Grand Prix cars, in fact, all cars, to go faster, just make the engine bigger, obviously. <laughs> you've, got a big, you've got a bigger engine, make more bang, bigger bangs, and... Uh, the wheels uh, go faster, and, and got, off we go. Exactly, and some and some of the cars, they ended up with the engines, the drivers having to peer around them uh, because they were so massive. So the, 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 the 1912 French Grand Prix, the Peugeot had a 7.6-litre engine, which now sounds enormous, right? Yeah. But it was up against the Fiat S76, which had a 14.1-litre engine. <laughs> so having a se- rocking up with a 7-litre car was, you know, what is that piddly little thing doing? Um, but uh, Georges Boileau, he chased David Bruce Brown's Fiat on the first day. This is one of those two-day races. Um uh, and then and then one on day two uh, once Bruce Brown's feet hit trouble, and the reason it, it's so it's so important is you know they went for a smaller engine, light construction. Um, they'd done uh, two overhead camshafts, hemispherical combustion chambers. Basically, they looked at ways to make the engine produce more power that weren't just let's make it bigger. Yeah. Uh, so a real lot of thinking going into it. Um, it was quite the, the engine was relatively low in the chassis for the period, so it was just a much more holistic approach to it. So I think it's it, it, and it was so far ahead of its time in terms of its thinking uh, that it was widely copied. Pretty much every car, racing car after that, was in some way influenced by the Peugeot. Um, I should probably mention that the later versions of what was essentially the same car really followed in 1913 and 1914. It's just as as engine regulations changed, they just made smaller versions. So the Peugeots dominated the 1913 French Grand Prix with the 5.7 litre car and then they were reduced again to 4.5 litres in 1914 where they were famously beaten by Mercedes but actually Boileau was leading into the closing stages. Now we'll get onto that in when we get onto the, mm. the greatest drivers list. But yeah, the Peugeot won the Indy 500, you know, so it's a Grand Prix winner, it's an Indy 500 winner, it's moved the game on. The only reason it's not high really is because it just didn't do that many races because there weren't as many races in those days. But it still looks like it was made in, it's 150 horsepower for something that looks like it's made in a shed because it probably was made in a shed and barely held together. It's just scary, scary to see these cars. I, 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 do, I do think, I mean, I think heroes get banded about too much in all sorts of contexts, but I think when you're talking about the drivers that were prepared to get in and, and do this, you, you, you perhaps could use the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another another innovation that uh, that Peugeot brought in uh, during this period was, was, was brakes on all four wheels. And you think, well, what were they doing before? Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of the cars would just have 
uh, brakes on the rears because getting the balance if you can get the balance right between all four wheels braking, it just threw you off the road. You know, we see that when there's a mm. you know, electronic failure or something now. If you've got inconsistent braking across the four wheels uh, or the two, or the, even the two axles, it can throw you off the road, and they just hadn't twigged that yet. But, but Peugeot were on the case with it. So wow. a lot of innovation in a short space short space of time. Um, so I, I, the Peugeot, yeah, Ernest Henri, uh, yeah, it's his, his, he designed that. It was only a four-cylinder as well, four-cylinder, mm. seven-and-a-half-litre <laughs> engine. Lisa. Um, yeah, I think a lot of credit for putting us on to a more efficient, sensible, clever path with automotive design. And was this the beginning of the regulations moving towards a, a capacity-based limit? Because before then, they'd have said, well, let's limit it to four-and-a-half litres, and everyone would have said, well, you can't do that. We can't make... It would just be a very slow car. And then, because Peugeot proved it could be done, it did it kind of open the door, or is that was it for different reasons? Well, I think it did It did sort of follow, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, know if, don't know... I couldn't tell you if Peugeot was the only... You know, their innovations mm. were the only factor. I think, as often happens, you know, uh, it probably would have happened to a degree anyway, because of rising speeds. Mm. Um, so they would have wanted to find a way of restricting it. But I guess that Peugeot pushing it forward kind of meant that it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a disaster for the spectacle to make the engines, you know, smaller. I mean, we're still talking massive engines in a modern context. Mm. But, yeah, that's that's how far we've come. You know, we get a lot more power. You know, if someone had a racing engine that was 7.6 litres and only producing 158 horsepower now, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd question it, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was it, the 14-litre the feet only had 208 horsepower. So, you know, it's all just moving the game along. All right, let's move on. Let's get into the top three, and we get into some very successful cars now. Number three. So, number three, I think you could make a case of being the most successful racing car of all time. And it's only number three on the it's list? It's only number three. Oh, my goodness. So... <laughs> Porsche 956-962 fans with your two or three hundred race wins. But, uh, the, the number of wins recorded, believed to have been recorded by the Bugatti Type 35 between 1924 and 1930 is believed to be in the thousands. Wow. Um, so it's up on the list partly because of that. Um, partly because uh, it also, you could almost think of it as like an earlier Maserati 250F in the sense that it filled grids. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there were various different versions. There was the first car, the first factory car was an uh, unsupercharged two liter. Later they supercharged it. Sorry, Bugatti didn't really want to supercharge it. But in the end, he just copied a Miller design from America. <laughs> Literally, pretty much just copied. Really? It. Yeah, yeah. So you know, copying again. Um, uh, they produced. He produced a sort of less powerful, easier to work on version. Whether that was for endurance racing mm. or for people that wanted to go private to Grand Prix racing again, kind of across the two. Um, uh, so it wasn't when it first appeared; it didn't change the game. It was outclassed by the Alfa Romeo P2, really. But it did start to it did start to, to gather momentum. The Type 39, which was the 1500 cc version, won the 1926 World Championship, and then really the Bugatti is kind of the car to have. The Type 35B was the ultimate one with a supercharged 2.3 litre engine and that won most of the major Grand Prix between 1928 and 1930 Alfa Romeo getting a little bit in the act but it was yeah it was the car and even in 1930 it was you know six year six year old design was still winning uh you know winning Grand Prix um and even the even the the type 51 
uh, looks similar. In fact, all the Bugattis appear to look basically <laughs> the same. You have to be a real aficionado, I think, to tell the differences. Uh, they produced the Type 51 with a double overhead camshaft supercharged engine, which gave them an extra 25 brake horsepower. And that, the, Louis Chiron, Akil Vartsi won the 1931 French Grand Prix, and that took 10 hours. So the, the wow. Grand Prix had to be 10 hours. On, that's one of the random rules they had for one season. Your Grand Prix's got to be 10 hours. Very nice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wow. Don't know why, but there we go. Uh, so a lot of those races were two driver. Because uh, even in the early 30s, they thought 10 hours was a bit much for one driver. Um, so, yeah, so the, it, it's not really innovative. It's the opposite to the Peugeot, really. Mm. It doesn't really move the game on, but it is a very important car, very successful car for a very long period of time. And they could run these cars for years uh, and it, years. It run it for years and years in all sorts of different events. Um, you know, and, and Bugatti had to be hard on this list. You know, it was a major player in Grand Prix racing in the 1920s and, and into the 30s before it got left behind um, you know, by the by the sort of space race between the Germans and Italians. And what was the AIACR in terms of setting the rules and regs for going racing? So that's basically the predecessor of the FIA. So, uh, and obviously we've, you know, we've been critical of the FIA in the past, but at least people do tend to listen to their rules, whereas there are a couple of times during this period where a lot of the race organisers go, no, we're not doing those rules, we're going to do our own thing. Wow. But, there's, but the, the, the type, so the, the Type 35 originally is designed as a Grand Prix car, um, so it is a genuine Grand Prix car, and even then, when they go into this Formula Libra period, the 2.3 liter version is quick enough to beat most cars. Yeah. So whatever Formula Libra, big Mercs, and Alphas and things are thrown at it, it, it and Bentleys, it you know it's it's one of the quick cars to have really. Into the top two, and the title of the podcast being the top ten pre-war Grand Prix cars this is really pushing it to the limit in terms of when it it just gets in this is probably the best car of the era of the era so number two is the Mercedes W154 Um, uh, the late Tony Drawn a very good driver and journalist did actually contact me when I did the Mercedes list and went no W154 should be ahead of the winner of this list really so uh, and he'd driven them <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was going to take his oh, gonna, okay. certainly going to take his, his thoughts into account but so in, in if you're talking uh, objective criteria you know this car wins the you know is the car in 1938 and 1939 um, it's lap times of uh, so for 1938 the, the organisers decide the rulemakers decide that the 750 kilogram formula has not worked oh okay spectacularly not worked <laughs> Which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, so they introduce a three-liter supercharged limit, but Mercedes do such a good job with the W154. Um, you know, it throws, it brings together everything they've learned during the decade. It's got, you know, it's got independent suspension. It's low-slung. It's streamlined. It handled better than anything before. Uh, and it's, you know, even though it's only a three-liter engine, it's uh, it produces like, the, the, the twin supercharged version they brought in in '39 has almost 500 brake horsepower. So 500 horsepower. No oh, aero. No aero. Nothing and pushing the car down. Nothing pushing the car down wow. at all. And not just that, but if you look at pictures of the tyre, and this applies to all these. Of course. I, I think you've probably seen, I was going to say motorbikes, but even possibly bicycles, that's probably an exaggeration, uh, that are wider than the tyre. Than the I mean, actually, that is, that's a good point that you raised that, because during the 1930s, the ability of the cars and power of the engines far, far outweighs the ability of the tyre manufacturers to keep up with the technology. So wow. thrown treads, stripped tyres, tyre failures, they are a common theme during this period because you know you're talking you know you're talking major power outputs these cars could do 200 you know 180 to 200 miles an hour 
No, I mean that that's quick now, right? Yeah, on, on tires that are just not capable of doing it, really. And it, I, again, it pushes the technology forward. So, um, yeah. So uh, there's a there's an interview on on, on YouTube uh, and other video channels are available uh, <laughs> with uh, Rudolf Uhlenhauer, who was the head of the racing department, and he basically he didn't even know what he spent on the program. That's how much money they had. So n- not only not a cost cap, but I literally didn't. He didn't even. He just sort of, whatever he wanted, he got. So these things were incredibly expensive to make very difficult to run you needed a professional outfit to run them proper thoroughbred grand prix car um and aside from a, a sort of troubled debut at poe the w1541 pretty much everything apart from uh, and then a couple of races towards the end of the new Valari 140 union rudolf caracciola won his third european championship mm. so effectively his third world title and in 1939 when they introduced an even slimmer body which actually i think is more attractive um, looking at it, it's, it's, it's a much neater design. And Herman Lang came to the fore. That was really his season. He wasn't European champion because of, uh, well, first of all, an argument over the rules. But the reason obviously that wasn't resolved is because everyone was distracted by a fairly major outbreak of war at the, during 1939. Um, but it was the car. It was the car, the benchmark. Even afterwards, you know, when uh, Raymond Mays put his white paper together for BRM, you know, the Mercedes is, this is what we need to do in the 1950s 40s and 50s so even so what happens to these cars during wartime 1939 to 1945 do they get mothballed you know uh, there is a sort of an interesting thing about how wartime moves technology forward um maybe that's a thing to do with the battlefield or not but in terms of the technology what happened then in post-war do these things come out of the you know, yeah, so are, are from the cloths they'd been under, or what? It's a, that's a fascinating question, actually. So, Alfa Romeo hid their cars in a cheese factory. Brilliant. Uh, there was a, some of the silver arrows were hidden in a a mine in what we what would have been called the Soviet bloc uh, for a while. They were in a mine. I think they were found. Mercedes were quite good at hanging on to theirs, so the, the, those cars were looked after. In fact, the the W one six five, the Voiturette car, which wasn't eligible for this list, which I've talked about before, that car was pro- those. They were two of them, and they were promised to Rudolf Caracciola, and Mercedes tried quite hard, contrary to what the Nazi Party wanted, to get the cars out to him because he got an invite to race in the nineteen forty six Indy five hundred with a Merc, uh, and he the, the story is fascinating. Actually, I could go on and on about it, but basically, he works really hard because he, he lives in. Uh, is Switzerland. He doesn't. He stays stays away from Germany during the war, much to the Nazi Party's irritation, and they freeze his pension and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, so he gets to the point where the cars do get to Switzerland, and it looks all ready to go. And then it's the British Foreign Office that stops the cars going to America. So oh. that's a, a, what could have been a brilliant motorsport story thwarted by the uh, by the British Foreign Office. But I suppose they probably weren't overly keen to help Germans out in 1946. Uh, it's probably a. <laughs> Probably the reason for that. Wow, um, and it's fascinating the, that uh, uh, for so long afterwards, this was cited as the technology to... Yeah, so they did bring them out for two races in Argentina in 1951. And Herman Lang driving one man, Fangio and Carl Kling. 12, 13 years later. Then. Yeah. Wow. Brought them out. Uh, it was a tight circuit. The local fuel didn't agree with them because, oh, that's the other thing we haven't talked about. The fuel in, yeah. in the back in the 20s and 30s was all sorts of concoctions of... I mean, one of the reasons the new Valari got ill and eventually died was because he had been breathing in these poisonous fumes for years and years. So there are some pretty horrendous things being put in the cars to make them work. Uh, and they didn't, yeah, they got beaten by, they got beaten by Jose Fran Gonzalez in a much newer Ferrari in 1951. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they were, the, they were on the podium. Um, and there was talk, if you look at some of the, the contemporary press, there was 
talk maybe Mercedes would come back to Grand Prix racing with those cars. And it's pointed out, well, Mercedes have probably learned quite a lot over the last 10 or 12 years. They'll probably come back with something different. And of course they did. And they did. Uh, but let's get on to the number one, as you say, possibly contentious. It's uh, why did you why did you put this car on top of your list? So you know how my criteria is normally you know how much it moves the game on, yes, how data. much it wins, data, <laughs> objectivity. <laughs> but I always have that little caveat of X factor because especially with cars, mm. uh, I think you know if you're interested in most racing, there's going to be certain cars that just fire you right, get you going, and the Mercedes W125 has to be one of those cars. I think if I was doing a list of top 10 greatest racing cars, or, or my favourite racing cars, this would be it. So, 19, So this is the absolute up yours to any rule makers. So, it's got, <laughs> so this is where we're trying to slow cars down. So we come into this period with the Tipo B with 300 and something horsepower. Uh, and we're, we're now just four years later, we've got a 5.6 litre supercharged straight eight producing up to 650 brake horsepower 114 brake horsepower per litre which is a lot for a big engine and it was just an absolute monster you know on skinny tyres but not only was it a monster it was it was an effective one so it only had that one year you know the rules were changing but it, it wrestled the initiative back away from auto union even Rosemeyer you know he only managed to grab a couple of wins during uh, during this season um uh, and uh, Caracciola takes the European Championship back. Uh, they finished, I think, one, two, three, four in the driver standings. So you know, dominant. Um, but the, the 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 fact that I wanted to bring out, which I, I do every time I get the opportunity, um, is that that at Avus, where they built the big banking, um, uh, Herman Lang won in a special streamlined version, um, and there were all sorts of different different Mercs and auto unions there. The average speed of his victory, the average speed of the race, this is, was 162 miles an hour. That's the average That's the speed. average speed. So the fastest laps were 170-something. So we, yeah, this is way uh, before Indianapolis gets that quick. 160 miles an hour average is still faster than any World Championship Grand Prix in history. So that's the sort of performance you're talking about. Okay, so it's a very fast track, but you get the idea of the sort of performance we're, you know, we're looking at here. But as you say, the technology in terms of the, the tyres and every, everything, the brakes, not that they're using too much of those, but all of the parts as well. This isn't a, a high-speed run on a drag strip or a, a land-speed record where it's got to be made to do. This is a Grand Prix car that's doing 160 miles an hour for hours. Yeah, I mean, they, they actually made the, the Avis races shorter because of tyre failures. Which is insane. Uh, or, the, the, or the possibility of tyre failures. So, but yeah, so the, the, the W125, it's a little bit like the Ferrari F2004, the end of a line, and because rule changes mean that some of the lap records held for a long time. Actually, the W154 was so impressive, it did, on tighter tracks, it did nick some of them back just before the war. Wow. But for years and years, the W125 would have been regarded as the you know, fastest racing car in history. And actually its power output wasn't surpassed in Grand Prix racing until uh, the turbocharged cars of the early 80s. So just just a fantastic monster. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure the W154 was better uh, as a package, but this is, this, is, this is just a monster. This is just a cool thing, I reckon. And what does the Mercedes team look like in this era in terms of how it's organised and the structure and a, and, a, and a professional racing team? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got Alfred Neubauer, famous uh, team manager, um, long experience in the sport, long-time Mercedes man, 
close friends with Rudolf Caracciola, who's the lead driver. Um, but you've got Herman Lang, who's a former mechanic, who's up and coming, um, and he's going to become the sort of the next guy. You've got Manfred van Brauchitsch, who is perhaps the unluckiest driver of the era, very quick, but always seem to find a new way not to win a race. And they normally have you know, one or two reserve drives that they bring in. But those are the sort of the three, the three big names. And yeah, very, um, you know, it was very. Uh, very organised. The car started when they were supposed to start. They, yeah, they were pretty reliable. They, they had moments, obviously. Tire failures and brakes were things that had to be looked after. You, if you drove these cars flat out, that you'd, you'd have no tyres in, you know, mm. half a dozen laps, sort of thing. Wow. So, um, yeah, so yeah, very, very organised, high, highly professional outfit. Um, really set a benchmark that probably wasn't reached for quite a few years afterwards, apart from when they then came back to Grand Prix racing in the mid-50s. And as you say, the X Factor, it's just beautiful. It's just I a, like a stunning it. I like it's cool. I mean, I think a lot of these cars from that era are cool, but the fact that it could do 200 miles an hour, and I think it could spin its wheels at 150 yeah, because of the tyre technology and what have you. Yeah, obviously, traction control is many, many decades. <laughs> traction control is is the drivers. Is the drivers? I think they had the pedals the other way around. I'm pretty sure that one of these cars, they might have been the W125, had the the brake and the throttle the other way around as well. So you could, if you weren't used to that, you could come a cropper. <laughs> I think it was the thing was the 125. And, and how and how are these cars started? Cranked at the front? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that the the so obviously the. <laughs> So you'd be there, the Brits, the French, the Italians would be there with a man cranking it, and of course the Germans would slot in a proper motor-driven <laughs> thing to fire it. I was just they were just on a completely not, you know, different level, really. really. By the time the, by the time the Second World War starts, is well, everyone's gone. The, the only mm. people really left in Grand Prix racing um, are, 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 the, are the two German teams and Alfa Romeo, who have kind of kind of gone to Voiturette, which is Formula Two anyway. Mm-hmm. So they they kind of seen off everyone. Um, so perhaps you know there needed <laughs> needed to be something to stop it. But perhaps a war was a bit <laughs> over the top. Goodness me! Well, that's our top ten. That's not mine. It's Kev's top ten lists of pre-war cars. This is also online if you want to go find it to go look at the pictures and some wonderful images from the archive that uh, have been dug out as well, which are, are fascinating. As Kev says, we we do our best on a podcast to describe it but sometimes it would be nice to have a little a compliment to uh, listen to this show and, and to go and have a look at some of these astounding images that, uh, that that were dug out of the archive so next we move from cars to drivers pre-war thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on the next one Podcast Network.